When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Luana Marquez. She is the author of the new book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power. She is the associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, And in her book, she's using her science-based skills to pinpoint how anxiety stems from avoidance and shows you how you can overcome it to achieve your goals. In other words, turn your anxiety into a strength through her three-step method to live boldly or live more boldly to, again, understand your anxiety and then use it as well as overcome it to achieve your goals. I know for me personally, I tend to have some anxiety. I know you probably do too. So this is going to be a very helpful conversation for you. And I really enjoyed talking with Luana about this. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Luana Marquez. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Luana Marquez. Luana, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. I'm excited to be here with you today. I am too. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't really talked about this topic specifically with anybody on this show for a while. I mean, we've gone around it. We've maybe mentioned it, but never took it on like, you know, full episode focus before. And of course, what I'm talking about is the word anxiety. You've got a brand new book out, Bold Move, A Three-Step Plan to Transform Anxiety into Power. And that's appealing because not only does it make it sound like, oh, you mean you can help me with my anxiety? That you can actually spin it and use it as a power. And I'm very excited to hear what you have to say on that. I think everybody is because we've all been living with anxiety or in anxiety, et cetera. There's lots of different terminology there for a while now. And it's been, you know, I'll just call it out. It's been exacerbated by the pandemic and COVID and all of that recently, but we're still kind of dealing with it. And we always will, won't we? We always will. Um, you're right. It's been increasing and increasing. It was one of the reasons that I took on the topic um, to write this book is because what I saw was like, you know, we had a heightened level of anxiety before the pandemic, but the CDC continues to report, you know, 30 to 40 percent of people in the U.S. are reporting clinical levels of anxiety or depression. And so we all know somebody that is struggling with it. We are all struggling with it. Let's be very clear. <laughs> and so I think it's so timely that we're taking it on and talking about it together today. And this has been long time coming for you. You've been doing research and work in this area for decades. Can you give a little bit of a background on that? 
Yeah, it's so interesting because it's coming not only as a researcher now at Harvard Medical School, but, you know, in writing the book, what I realized is that I grew up as an anxious kid. I grew up in Brazil with a single mother. We had very little resources for a period of our lives. And I remember moments of like not wanting to go to school because maybe my mom wouldn't be there when I come back. And then, you know, life continued. I eventually got to the U.S. And for the last 20 years, I've been here at Mass General and Harvard Medical School. For the last 10, what I've been actually doing is training paraprofessionals in community organizations how to deal with stress and anxiety so that they can help inner city youth. And so the book is sort of a combination of a personal and professional journey that sort of all hit together during COVID when I realized oh my God, we are all hurting. I'm hurting. And, you know, I have skills that have kept me going despite adversity. It's time to share some of them with as many people as possible because we can. We actually can transform anxiety into power. It's not easy, I have to say, but it can be done. I'm curious what your definition of the word anxiety is because a lot of people, when they hear that word, they go to their mental thesaurus and they translate it as things like nervous or worry or they think panic attack or anxious, which maybe isn't exactly the same thing as anxiety. What is your definition? Because so we can kind of lay some groundwork here. Love it, Eric. So I'm going to separate what you said because I love it. There's two levels that you're talking about. First is the spectrum of anxiety, right? From like, I'm a little nervous to like, I'm having a panic attack. So from mild to more severe. But let's go back to the first question, which is, what is anxiety? And the way I think about it is there are three components on anxiety. And so I'm going to separate them so that people who listen to us can really think about what what is anxiety for me? Because I think that's the interesting question, right? One is when we start to feel some discomfort, some anxiety, the, one of the first things that happen is our thinking starts to get catastrophic. And so we start to get black and white. I say things to myself like, I'm never going to be successful. I can't do this. People are going to think I'm a failure, right? So there's this cognitive thinking component of anxiety that is this black and white, very limited view of the world that can keep us really stuck. And in that, I should also say there is this tendency of like, you know, predicting worst case scenario in the future. So for some people, anxiety is not just physiology or biology, it's thinking. For some of, of the people that I work with and for some of the people that I coach, it's really that physical anxiety that we think about. Heart pounding, sweaty, dizzy palms, you know, tingling, like you want to run out of your body because you feel so uncomfortable. And in the end of that spectrum is what you talked about, panic attacks. And then the final component of anxiety that I particularly love, because the one that's last talked about, which is the component of behavior, which is what do I do when I get anxious? And for a lot of people, and I talk about this in the book a lot, is the anxiety comes in and what the behavior is, is avoidance. So long answer to just say anxiety is your internal experiences. It affects your thoughts, your feelings, and your your behavior. And in the severe case, gets us stuck in panic attacks. But even, you know, moderate levels of anxiety can feel paralyzing for some. Well, and I know that you say that anxiety is painful, but it specifically is not what keeps us stuck. Now, what do you mean by that? So I think about anxiety as a high fever. Everyone I've worked with in my life, and I tend to specialize in the anxiety spectrum, have come to me, Eric, and says, Dr. Luana, get rid of my anxiety. I don't want to feel anxious. And being an anxious human being myself, I get it. Anxiety feels awful. 
But anxiety is just that fever. What keeps us stuck really is what we do when we are anxious. So for example, you know, I was super excited to talk to you today, but I live a little nervous. Your podcast is a big deal. And I was like, wow, imagine if I, instead of showing up a little jazzed up, I just, you know, sent you a message and says, hey, Eric, you know, I'm not feeling so good today. Can we reschedule? If I did that, I'd feel momentarily better right? That's what the term I use in the book, psychological avoidance. It makes you feel momentarily better. But I can guarantee you in half an hour, I'd be really saying all nasty things to myself. Oh my God, Eric is never going to have me in his podcast again. Look at that. I am a loser. And then I get more and more anxious. And so the opposite of that anxiety and avoidance is choosing to approach. And, and I think what gets us stuck to go back to that is really psychological avoidance is walking away from anxiety instead of learning to transform into power. So in other words, we're so trained in terms of that's uncomfortable or this makes me feel uncomfortable or think uncomfortable or act in ways that when I'm uncomfortable, behaviors that are, you know, the TUB cycle is what I'm referring to, basically, that we go yeah. to all three of the, you know, it's the, and I have to call it out. I'm a Venn diagram, you know, freak. So that, you know, the, the TEB cycle, thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, all of those being a circle and then it being crossing over into the center as the Venn diagram had to call it out. That's what you're talking about earlier and, and now. And it's that unhealthy way of dealing with something stress, potentially stressful. I want to caveat that, say potentially stressful. It maybe doesn't have to be, right? I love it. You're absolutely right. So when I'm talking about psychological avoidance, I talk about perceived threat. So if there's an ambulance rushing towards you in the middle of the street, yeah, dig out, like get out of the way, save your life. But we are talking about our interpretation situations. Sure, going on a date is nerve wracking. But most of the time, it's not a life or death situation, but our brain can perceive that as so threatful. And we're biologically wired to move away from anything that has the potential of being threat. And although our brain's so amazing about being able to protect us, it really sometimes can't distinguish real threat from perceived threat. And so what we do, we avoid. And I think it's worse because of this is such a, you know, a trite thing to say, but technology does definitely exacerbate the problem because we see things through lenses, through screens or see, you know, receive just text messages with almost no context to them. And then we have to decipher what they're saying and be curious about whether there was a tone there and, and all of that. And it's not that technology in and of itself exacerbates the problem by itself. It's that it augments or ramps up. It's it's like, no, we already had anxiety. You know, we already could experience that in and of itself. But it's the the rate and frequency and potential amount. We're in other words, we're so trained to constantly be communicating and connected that it's well, one, we're never giving our brain a rest to be able to practice proper anxiety of, um, you know, techniques like you talk about in the book. But then two, we're just constantly, you know, what was that? What was that? What was that? Like fight or flight over and over and over again. <laughs> oh, it's so true. I, I had that thought this morning a little bit. I was doing something and then I did something else and something else. And then somebody's like, oh, did you post on social? There was so much coming at me that at one point I was like a cup of tea, 
and a little bit of a walk because you're right. It's like technology, especially for somebody that has the underbelly of being a little anxious, can just throw wood on the fire. And so it burns hotter and hotter. And then we avoid to try to calm down, which again, makes it worse. Um, and, and so I agree with you. We can't escape technology, but we have to figure out how to consume in a way that is not just feeling our anxiety more and more, um, which it is for a lot of us. That's that's the reality. Well, one of the things that you know, I couldn't help because this is a productivity show. I couldn't help but think about the correlation between avoidance and the word procrastination, that it's almost like avoidance wearing a mask of, oh, no, 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 do it. Do that later because it makes you feel uncomfortable or it makes you think those thoughts of inadequacy or I know I've got a mask on. It's just saying, no, it'll be fine. I'm here to protect you. I'm here to take care of you. You're okay if you do that later, but that's still just avoidance. <laughs> I love that you thought about that. Actually, as I was preparing to come talk to you, it's one of the things I was thinking how, you know, procrastination is just hidden avoidance because why are we procrastinating, right? There's a task in front of us and that task has some degree of either making us feel uncomfortable or our thoughts saying, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm inadequate. And so we walk away for a little bit. We feel slightly better when we procrastinate. But for anybody that procrastinate and is listening to us, you know this. It just feels so much worse. And then that wave of, of like anxiety just increases. So every time you go touch that thing again, then it gets higher and higher, right? Because the brain is basically scanning and you, you don't do your writing for today or you don't do your, your summary report for your job. The next day you go set to do it. What is the first thing you feel? Anxious. And then your brain, see, can't do it. Let's go get a cup of tea. And you no know, procrastination just builds such procrastination. The worst part is it only makes the anxiety worse over time. Like it, it has no really good benefit, really. Yeah. And I can't help but think of like the correlation between avoidance being the delaying of the uncomfortableness or the pain or however you want to describe that and instant gratification where it's, no, I don't want to put off the gratification till later. I want that now, but I want to delay the, the pain, the, the, the complicatedness, except the anxiety for later. It's like, no, I want this now and that later. Right. It's, it's like, no, yeah, we've no, got to no, learn no, how to deal with these. We've got to learn how to deal with these in a proper, healthy way. It's so true. And, and going back to your point about, you know, technology, there's such instant gratification so much. You see this and it's like right now you can get everything here now. But the real work in life doesn't get done overnight. You don't lose weight overnight. You don't stay healthy overnight. You don't have a kid overnight. It takes nine months. Like there is no really instant gratification of the things that are value driven. They're meaningful. But we keep sort of wanting. I, I love how you said it. You keep wanting it and yet procrastinating, which is really like great way to think about avoidance. I love how you sort of brought the two together, Eric. So if we can have a certain amount of self-awareness and acknowledge that, yes, stopping running away from our anxiety, I think there's still some people that are thinking, okay, but I do want you to help me not be as anxious or not have anxiety. And I think you're saying in the book, you're never going to get rid of it completely, just like fear. In fact, it's kind of akin to fear. It's not about being fearless. It's about dealing with fear and dealing with anxiety appropriately. I think that message is so important 
because there are so many people that come to me and say, no, but I still want to have no anxiety. And, you know, the analogy that I often use is having no anxiety is like having no pain receptors. Now, the idea theoretically is great, right? But then you touch a hot stove and you don't feel anything and you have serious burn. And so anxiety in some level, at certain amount signals something. And then it's what you do about it. I mean, I... I tend to avoid by overdoing because I hate anxiety so much that I just like do more and more. And then I have to catch myself and be like, Luana, and this is just avoidance, like what it is that you're really anxious about. But there isn't a single day of my life, all those that I work with, that they have not some level of discomfort and anxiety. And and it's how we see it, Eric, right? Like if you go for a jog and you come home and your heart's pounding, you go, oh, that's awesome. If you wake up and your heart's pounding, you go, oh, something is wrong. And just that interpretation makes you more anxious. So it's really learning to figure out how to identify your type of anxiety and avoidance and then how to start to make anxiety work for you. And the last thing I'll say here is I've said this for years to my patients and I live by this. If you're going to feel anxious anyhow, okay, if you know there's a situation, if you don't like presentations, but you have to give presentations, you don't like flying and you have to fly for work then might as well use that anxiety for good and capitalize on it instead of letting it paralyze you. If it's going to be there, then let's dance with it and let's learn how to sort of work with it. And there you go. That's the turning of the, uh, sorry, not turning, transforming. That's how you transform or the transforming of anxiety into power, like the subtitle of the book says. Before we get to that transforming part, I want to call a little bit more uh, out here in terms of context. So someone's listening They've experienced anxiety before, but what they may not have experienced is the proper way to deal with that. How do we notice and have self-awareness of our anxiety and recognize those patterns of thoughts and feelings and actions, the TEB cycle? Let's talk about that a little bit. I love that you went here. So before we can do anything about anxiety, we have to first, you know, understand what how anxiety shows up and so eric has said a few times about the tb cycle which is the thoughts emotions and behavior cycle so a situation happens for any of us it doesn't matter what it is that situation has an impact on what we say to ourselves how we feel and what we do and this is happening all the time and a lot of this in automatic pilot right you're driving you see a traffic light going from going from green to yellow immediately you're going to step on the brakes and your brain is going to say time to stop. And, and that's just all the time the brain's doing that. When it comes to anxiety, though, often when we start to feel that discomfort and the emotions, the E on the TB cycle comes up, people start to try to avoid so fast. And so the superpower here is before you run away, my suggestion, and it's based on science, is to literally pause for a second if you can, either real time or later, write down the situation. I was going to ask for a raise. Thoughts. I am not good enough. I messed up once at work. I don't deserve a raise. Feelings. Anxious, frustrated, scared. Behavior. Reschedule the meeting related to asking for the raise. What we know scientifically is if we're able to actually write, we're activating the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, which calms down the amygdala, which is responsible for your fight, flight, or freeze that you talked about. So before we even go change it, the first thing is like take a picture of your day, especially on anxiety-driven moments, and 
start to dissect thoughts, emotions, and behaviors because you basically then create a framework that allows you to understand, okay, for me, anxiety shows up in thinking. I need to do something about this. Or I'm the kind of person that really hates the physiology, the emotions. And that creates the little gap between, you know, anxiety and reaction where we can do something. Does, does that help a little bit, Eric? It does. Yeah, that that's very helpful. And so then in light of that, I think the other key piece here is some of us are aware, some of us are not, of the different forms that avoidance. We, I mean, we're kind of wired already to just naturally try to avoid anxiety. When it comes up, most of us don't fight, we flight, right? So, <laughs> which that all rhymes, so that's cool. What are some of the ways that we can acknowledge or recognize uh, the forms that avoidance then does to to show up? So when we sense that discomfort, we've been talking a lot about this fight, flight or freeze response, which most people have heard about, which is what we are biologically to do to real danger. So if you're face to face with a lion, you're going to fight the lion flights. As you said, most of us would flight or you freeze completely. The parallel that on psychological avoidance is what I call the three R's of avoidance. React, retreat, or remain. The reason I label them differently is because in avoidance, we are talking about perceived threats. We're not talking about just your fight, flight, or freeze on real threats. And the three ways this shows up is, you know, we're talking about productivity here and, you know, people at work. Imagine that you got an email at 10 p.m. from your boss. And that email says in the subject head, we need to talk. Now, If you have a great relationship with your boss, you're probably going to not go on fight, flight or freeze. It's going to just be okay. Now, let's imagine that you've been in constant argument with your boss and just that subject line, your brain takes that as danger and you're going to have one or three responses. If you're me, (laughs) I actually react. I'm in the field that likes to react. And what does react look like in avoidance? You go towards discomfort. So in my case, I might just type a fast email back, you know, and say everything I'm thinking without thinking, let's be clear, because I'm on five flight or freeze, and regret it in the next morning. I do that because reacting makes me feel better in the moment. The problem is now I have to clean up the next day. My husband, on the other hand, tends to flight. He is a kind of person that will actually retreat. So he will look at the email. He actually said this to me one time. He's like, oh, I just open it. I put on the other screen on my computer and I just leave it there for a little bit. And then he starts to think about it. He's avoiding by sort of thinking about it to try to not touch it. So he's moving away from the discomfort. And finally, some of us are frozen. We remain. You know, I have colleagues of mine in situations like that, open an email, stare at their phone and like five minutes go by and They literally just don't know what to do. And so basically avoidance can be reacting, going towards it to try to make yourself feel better. Retreat, going inward and you're thinking, trying to, again, make yourself feel better or frozen, remain. And in that situation, you do nothing and you just sort of like deer in the headlight. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent 
fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, in two of those, reacting feels like it's the most akin to the title of the book, Bold Move. Move means motion. It means at taking action. I don't know that that's exactly what you mean, though. So can you clarify what a bold move means in terms of healthy dealing with anxiety? In fact, even turning it into a power. So thoughtful. So I titled the bold, bold move, not because you have to react or go towards things. To me, a bold move is going towards the things that matter to you the most. So living a value-driven life where you are going towards anxiety, not away from anxiety, but in a value-driven way, where you as a human being show up fully as you and the size of the bold move, it's yours. Like for some people, it's a little thing. Somebody just saying to somebody, Listen, this just happened to a patient of mine. She said to her significant other, that really hurts me when you said that. And she avoided conflict her whole life. That's a bold move for her, for her to be able to show up and say, listen, I have an opinion here and you're hurting me. And so that's what I imagine as a world that it has people doing bold moves. They're showing up. They know what matters and they're not letting anxiety paralyze them anymore. They're really learning to move towards their dreams. One or small or big step at a time. Now, you mentioned value-driven. What do you mean by that? Values are intrinsic motivators, things like health, love, friendship. We talk a lot about values in our society, and most of us would say, okay, I care about trust or I care about truth. Um, and not a lot of us spend time aligning our lives with our values. And what we know scientifically is a value-driven life leads to less stress, leads to less anxiety, less depression. And and the symbol of a value-driven life is, are you doing the things that matter to you the most? Are those things in your calendar? If you look at your calendar in the last week, if you're talking about productivity here, right? Like, are you actually showing up for the things that matter that makes you feel productive? Imagine that that's a value that a lot of people listening to you care about. And so, How much of your daily actions are aligned there? And that's what I mean by living a value-driven life so that you can be bold in your own way. So in other words, it's not just, oh, I think family is important. That's a value. It's, It's you're talking about having drilled down maybe a level or two into that. Well, if I say that family is important, which is just one that I hear people say in general, and I do believe Mm -hmm. it, but what it means to me is, because I've done a little bit of the homework on this, it's one thing I'm still working on, actually. If you say family is important, that's a value. But if you want to make it actually applicable and usable as a decision-making you know, you, I've done the homework on that. Now I know, you know, I've got my decision-making rubric that when something comes up, I can decide, oh, okay. So uh, I'm trying to think of an example here that would fit with this. Do you have, if you have one, feel free to jump yeah. in. No, I, I think this is great. I mean, so for example, you know, in terms of like, 
work um, related things. So imagine that, you know, being able to be productive at work matters, that you're delivering on time and that's something that matters to you. But now you're procrastinating again and again to the point that you're never meeting deadlines. So now your actions are no longer aligned to that value of being productive, which basically means to you that you start to hurt. You start to get more and more anxious. And, and another example in the family one is if you save family matters, but you're stuck at, at work at 7 p.m. at dinner time every day, putting out a, a crisis out at work and a crisis out at work, and you never show up for your family or you show up, but you're not present. Your phone is right there and, and your kid is talking to you at dinner and you're like, what do you say again? What do you say again? And so whenever we start to compromise our values, that's where we see a lot of the stress. And most of us think about the values, but don't actually create actions. I mean, this is, I, I think I'm jumping as I had to the skills in the book, but it is this idea of like alignment. How do you create a life that you ensure? I, I do this as a great tip for the people who listen to us. Every Sunday, I look at my calendar for the next week. And right now, launching this book, this has become particularly important. And I go, okay, what are the things I'm doing the next week? They're related to impact, which is what I want to do with this book. I want to have impact so that we can decrease the mental health crisis in the world. And then what are the other values that matter? Health and family are the other two. Do I have a little time with my kid every day? Am I going to get to the gym every day? And I've had, had to shuffle things to try to get those things. And it's not a balance. It's a matter of ensuring that each day, the things that I care about get in at the right percentage for that particular season of my life, so to speak. Perfect. Yes. And that's exactly kind of where I was going with this was you've predetermined which things are most important and in what way, and then worked out what's kind of the regular consistency or interval that is applicable to now, to this season. And so if you've got, and, and here's the thing, some of us are a little more perfectionistic than others. And so we're able to, and, but, but then we're able to say, okay, of that value worked out in my life on a consistent basis, what's the percentage I need to hit to feel consistent? Is it 80%? Is it 90? It's not going to be a hundred percent because there that, you know, there are exceptions to every rule, but the reason we create the rule, the reason we do the homework with these values is to break it down to that point of being able to say, Okay, so 7580, somewhere in that realm, so that if something comes up, we can then throw it through the process and say, no, I do, you know, to go back to your work scenario and dinner time and family and how that all, you know, meshes together. Oh, you know what? It's come up. I'm probably going to have to do a little bit more time, hours, et cetera. And I may miss dinner a few times, but instead of freaking out, or doing things to avoid, you know, to start to go down the avoidance path, we take, take a second and we say, wait, but this just puts me into the 75, 80 per 5%. We're still all good. There's nothing to worry about here. I love how you added that pause in there. That's exactly right. Because the brain is going to want to flip and go like, it's not working. It's not working. And you go, wait a minute. What is the What is the math that I created? What is, you know, that accountability for myself? And sometimes, you know, you can't hit exactly. But if you're close enough and then you can always say, okay, then Saturday I'll do this differently. Or, you know, I think as long as it's a conscious decision based on somebody's roadmap for their life, then I think it's so much easier to rearrange things and align again than just panicking. Because mm -hmm. that panic just creates anxiety instead of, you know, and rubs us for an, a meaningful life. 
Yeah. And so it's about having that intentionality and forethought and flexibility that then lets you deal with the anxiety in a, in a healthful. I said healthful again. I'm just going to just trademark it now. It's healthful in a healthy way. <laughs> See, my English, the second language is rubbing on us here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. I actually, somebody told me recently. It's not in, they've now started to say instead of English as a second language, they're saying English as an additional language or something. I'm forgetting what it is because, <laughs> because they were teaching people English, but they already knew three, four, five other languages. So it was instead of, um, English as second language, it, it was English as additional language or something like that. So. Side good note. one. Yeah. No, good one. I actually hadn't even thought about this and I should know my five-year-old speaks three languages in kindergarten and is now learning English as his third language. So that's a great refrain. Yeah, Thank see, you. it's not a second. It's his third or fourth. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it works is we, we learn, we, we have to learn and, and this isn't going to be an instantaneous process. This is Again, and you're all about the brain. I love that somebody corrected me maybe a year ago when I, I would consistently use the term muscle memory and the brain is a muscle, but it's mm-hmm. less to do with muscles in your body and your, you know, oh, my arms and my legs. Remember, no, it's the pathways in the brain. So we've got to continually train ourselves to properly deal with this in the right way and create those new and or better pathways. So true. And, you know, the pathways we currently have are the ones that we travel the most, that they fire the fastest, but sometimes the ones that lead to that anxiety. And so it is finding ways to create new pathways and prune the ones that don't work anymore. Actually, that's another reason why the technology plays a huge part in this is because, again, it's so quickly rewarding the avoidance and the connection and the dopamine hit and all of that kind of good stuff, which is in a whole other show. And I'll list that somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So um, I know that there's also uh, one of the things that we kind of get used to, again, with the huge amount of connection in terms of technology, but again, it doesn't have to be technological, is the idea of false alarms. And you talk about that at length in the book as well. Yeah. So, you know, because our brain's function is twofold, right? To protect and predict. And it's trying to keep us away from danger and then and it's using information to predict what's next. And often some of those predictions are really a false alarm that your brain is expecting the worst case scenario, either based on history or based on interpretation. When I used to date, I remember, you know, one of the beliefs that I had growing up that I fought my whole life is this idea of um, not being enough, that I'm not good enough. I'm never going to accomplish enough. And I remember going on dates and the person would give me one look and my brain would immediately say, oh, see, they don't like me. And I would just like not go on a second date because my brain basically had a fire alarm. It basically said, oh, this is bad. It's going to go bad and made a prediction but it's a false alarm. In fact, my now husband, David, maybe it's second date. He's looked at me. He's like, what is that face you just made? I was like, well, you know, I'm thinking you're bored. And he's like, I'm not bored. Like, don't don't put things on my head, on my face. But my brain predicted it based on my belief. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so off. I imagine how many dates I probably blew through my life just through false alarms. Well, and lucky for him, you did that so that you got to him. So <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. 
Uh, so I'm trying to think of here how we can recap. I know that there's there's so much more in the book in terms of where we can go. You also talk about the idea of being a, a thought, I almost said thought leader. That's not the term. Thought lawyer, a very different thing. Explain what you mean by thought lawyer. So, you know, we've talked so much about avoidance and, and really is the problem. And so I love that anxiety is, you know, we're talking about anxiety as something that doesn't have to paralyze us. And so there are three skills in the book. And the one that is a thought lawyer is shift. So shift, actually, in the example I just gave about dating is a great example of shift. Whenever we feel anxious, the temperature goes up, our brain becomes catastrophic in black and white. And based on whatever views of the world we have, we jump some pretty pretty quick conclusions. So in my case, I just thought, you know, my my date was bored and therefore something is wrong. Shift is the idea that we need to understand that thoughts are not facts and that we need to be able to question our thoughts. And there's several different ways to do this based on what's known as cognitive therapy. One of them is to become a detective. Like what data do I have here to suggest this person is bored? Does a look always mean somebody's bored? Is there a different way for me to see this look from this person, right? Or in this case, if my best friend was in this date, what would my best would, would I say to my best friend, right? Because what could I look mean? It could mean somebody's bored. It could mean that they didn't pay attention. It could be that they're thinking about their laundry list of things to do and their brain just is there. And so in shift, I urge everybody to create that pause through the tab cycle first. So the thoughts, emotions, and behavior cycle. and then. Take a little moment, investigate what you're saying to yourself, because if it's negative and if it's distorted, it tends to get us more and more anxious. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So, and, and, and I think the, the thing, there's so many lawyer jokes out there. I think some people <laughs> want to avoid, them. but uh, we all, we also need them. We need them to be the, the thinker, the person that analyzes and or looks at the i guess that's the way you come up with it is you look at the evidence and and just make a an intelligent decision instead of a snap judgment yes because the snap judgment tends to be just anxiety lenses so maybe the best way to think about simplistically we can take even the lawyers out is you know we're wearing glasses all the time that's our belief systems and they to help us process information fast, our brain's making some conclusions. And sometimes we're accurate, sometimes we're not. And what I say to people is when we are anxious, there is a good chance that we're not being 100% accurate. So maybe just pause for a second, question your thinking a little bit and see if you can balance it out a little more so that you can see the world a little better and feel a little less anxious. I like that. I like that a lot. And I, I think, you know, again, I, I'm not perfect at this. Having just gone through the book, there's obviously a lot of things that I'm now more aware of for me personally. And I think it's going to be different for different people reading the book. But I think for me, it was just calling awareness to the ways that I choose to avoid, whether it's conscious or not, or, you know, in other words, how consistent a habit I've made that and what forms it takes. Even just that alone makes a lot of difference. I'm so glad to hear that, Eric, because to me, if people can get that level of insight, you know, the, the skills in the book are skills based on cognitive behavior therapy. There's many different ways to sort of slice and dice those skills. But I don't think we talk about avoidance enough. And because we don't, most of us are stuck on it, but we have no idea. It's like we have this like silent thing that comes and like drags us down, but we don't know what it is. And I, I'm 
really humbled that, that you were able to use the book in that way. That really means the world to me. Yeah. So I, I think this is kind of a perfect timing for the book, too. I mean, again, I, like I said, it called attention to the pandemic. Obviously, we've all gone through a lot of stressful situations, but a lot of what we've talked about here really is just everyday life situations. We've just been swimming in, though, a a sea of everything feels stressful and draining and anxiety building for so long that we definitely need to be applying. We need to go through the book and apply it as a release valve to again, and I'll use it wrong this time to healthfully go through <laughs> uh, experience anxiety and, and dealing with it properly and not, um, you know, in other words, to stop, you can't stop anxiety, but you can stop avoiding it and you can use it the right way. That's exactly right. I love it. You can't stop anxiety, but you can stop avoiding and you can choose to go towards this conference to approach instead of avoid. And I think most of us never felt like we had a choice because we didn't even know what we were avoiding. And so I think that's the start in the conversations. If you can figure out that you're avoiding, now you create a choice. You may want it or not. Um, but I think you're right. A lot of us have transitioned so much during this pandemic. And I'm not sure we have landed. And I think many of the folks I work with that I hear have landed sort of a little upside down and trying to figure out how do I make meaning of life now that I went through all of this. Um, and I think there is a hefty level of avoidance that we can get it rid of so we can start striving again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I said this, I think pre-recording and even probably during this conversation, I really think this book is going to be a huge help to a lot of people. And so I can't wait for people to get it in their hands as the book is coming out. Is there a place I know it's available everywhere and go to your favorite bookstore and physical bookstores, especially, but uh, where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing as well as, find out more about the book on your site. So you can go to www.drluana.com backslash book. That's where the book lands. That way, that's where you're going to find out all of the speaking engagements, book signing, all those things. Um, and please reach out to the social. Let's create a conversation. I want to hear about how people are avoiding and what we can do together to create this bold world that I so envision. Perfect. And I will make sure to link up to that in the show notes as well as, you know, different links to where you can grab the book, et cetera. Make it easy for you because I definitely think this is one of those ones that you want to pick up and work through, especially maybe this summer as you kind of take pause. So there you go. Luana, thank you so much. It's been awesome talking with you and I can't wait to see what a difference in the world your book makes. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for sharing how the book impacted you and for being such a great host and having such a great podcast. I've enjoyed listening to it and loved being here with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that is another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Luana Marquez like I did. Talking about anxiety is not necessarily something we hit on on this show very often, but when we do, man, it's powerful. And uh, I just hope that it did something for you. I hope that you got something out of this and, and grab the book. I mean, Bold Move is a great conversation starter for your own internal dialogue as well as others around you. If you found this episode helpful, I'd love for you to do me a favor as well as somebody else that you can think of a favor by sharing this podcast episode with them. Hit that share button wherever you're listening to this or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thanks again for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you 
next episode. <laughs>